Well, good morning. You guys actually say good morning. My church never says anything to me, so this is... It's nice when I'm a guest somewhere, people are more polite. Um, we're really thankful to be here. My wife, Grace, is here, and we've also brought a couple of our elders, Steve and his wife, Carolyn, and uh, Bill and his wife, Julia, that are, are here with us. And In fact, we've been staying at, at their place in Chandler the last few days, and uh, we, we bring greetings from Trinity West Seattle and uh, from the great freeze in the Northwest. It's been nice to get some sun and discover once again what that glowing, glowing orb in the sky is. We never see that during this time of year, so it's really helpful for us. And as Tim said, um, there is a, a particular fondness for PBC. Um, I've known Leanne for quite some time, and as, as he mentioned, I had the privilege of, of being able to officiate their wedding uh, down here, and she's like a daughter to us, and so when she has children, as she seems to be having, uh, they, they become like our grandkids, and so it's, it's just a real joy, and of course, it's very difficult not to love Nate as well. If you don't know Nate and love Nate, then something's wrong with you. Um, <laughs> but uh, our elders want to say hi. Our church wants to say hi to you, and uh, we would ask that you continue to pray for us. We're part of the artist formerly known as Mars Hill, and so we are... Um, we are beginning again in many ways, and we started just a couple of years ago ourselves, and so uh, it's a very similar sort of trajectory, and, and really just grateful uh, for the privilege of coming down here and being able to preach God's word. So with that, let me pray just one more time and ask for God's help, and then we'll open up our Bibles, and we'll just be through the first chapter of Nehemiah. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for your kindness, Lord, that is expressed in a thousand ways every day. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that, that see uh, your goodness towards us and in gratitude and worship respond, Father, that we would, as Nehemiah prays, make your name great. God, we, we ask that you'd help us today. Uh, we come with uh, different experiences this week, some rejoicing at your blessings, some wondering if you're still there, and others not quite sure what to think. And Lord, we ask that by your spirit and word that you'd give help You'd help us to um, see reality unveiled for us as we, as we read this true story of the whole world. God, um, give me help, I pray. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to speak your word in truth. And Lord, help us as a people continue to worship you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Nehemiah chapter 1. One of the, um, especially through this last couple of years, uh, I've learned uh, in a way that, that brings greater, probably, uh, reality to this, this particular text that we're reading this morning is one of the most difficult things I think we'll ever do in life is rebuild. I think it is an extraordinarily challenging to begin again. Um, the emotional energy, the psychological effort, the discipline that's required to get up after heartbreaking loss is significant and it's often very, very costly. Marriages end. Careers collapse, financial ruin visits even the wise among us, loved ones are lost, and you wake up the following day wondering how in the world will I ever rise again. And perhaps the most difficult loss occurs when the wounds that we're experiencing are, are self-inflicted. When you, when you know you're to blame, you know every tear and sigh you've done to yourself, and our well-meaning friends, as they are, want to assure us that the morning sun will rise, uh, but it, it seems as if the shadow of our folly 
seems inescapable when we're trying to rebuild. And if you've ever felt this way, the book of Nehemiah is a book for you. Uh, Nehemiah is a true story of a chosen people that have been handpicked by God to be a channel of blessing to the whole world. They're not an impressive people. They're not a noble people. Um, but they were God's people. And God always intended to have a people for himself, a people to whom he would reveal his glory and a people through whom that glory would be revealed to the whole world. And if you know anything about the beginning of the Israelites, you'll remember the story of God picking an unlikely servant by the name of Abram all the way back in Genesis 12, who would, of course, eventually become Abraham. Abram was just a pagan guy living in the land of Ur, married to his barren wife. They were not noble. They were not powerful, rich, or even fruitful, but they were old (laughs) and completely incapable of blessing the world, which is just the type of people that God loves to use to remind others that he is God and we are not. And so God makes this outrageous promise to Abram that one day he would pour out his blessings on him and his family and he would make them into a a great nation. He'd make his name great, and that, strangely, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. Now, how a withered old vine, which is no compliment to old men, and a barren woman would accomplish such a feat is a story for a different time. We don't have time today for that, but what is important is that the very identity that God shapes in his people from the beginning is to be a so that people, a people that are blessed by God, that are loved by God, that are chosen by God for the express purpose of being a blessing to others. And every Jew knew the story of Abram. Every Jew knew that they were a chosen and blessed people by God for the express purpose of blessing the nations of the earth. And what sin had done uh, from the garden in ruin and devastation God seems to be, in the choosing of Abraham, on the move to redeem and to restore everything that's been fouled through sin in all of God's creation. And so God's missional horizon from the very beginning is every tribe and tongue. And the rest of the Old Testament story from Genesis 12 and the calling of Abram all the way up through to the book that we're in today in Nehemiah is really just commentary on how well Israel kept their covenantal identity. Would they faithfully bless the nations? Would they live as a light to the nations? Exodus and Judges and Kings and all the prophets tell this story in painful detail. And sadly, the the sin of their first parents, of Adam and Eve, goes deep and these blessed people tend to turn their backs on God again and again. And in the face of his loving, patient, and pursuing kindness and faithfulness, they seem to love their sin more than they love their God. And it's a heartbreaking story. Sometimes when you read Judges, you're just wondering, why doesn't God just smote them and be done? Until you look in the mirror and then you realize, oh yeah, that's why, because I'm just, I'm just like them. And though these people have been freed from Pharaoh's whip, they have experienced the Red Sea crossing, they came to Mount Sinai, a liberated people, they were given God's law, God moves them onto their promised land, they are enjoying God's presence in the tabernacle, and eventually when uh, they occupy Jerusalem and the temple is built after all these things, uh, yet they still are a people that seem to be bent away from God. 
um, they don't seem to understand what it means to really follow him uh, in, in some uh, sort of worldview and life-capturing sense. They, uh, they don't quite understand what it means to be God's people. This is not a struggle that's dissimilar to our own. I think most of us that are here this morning understand on, on some level that God loves us, that God has chosen us for himself, that God poured his grace out upon us. Um, and, and we understand that that has some eventual impact and blessing to us, you know, that one day we won't experience hell. And that seems to be the sum total of, of what we think it means to be God's people. It's, it's just an escape from potential consequence. And of course, if you're older and you remember the old preaching um, gurus of the day back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, they would often ask the question, what are you going to do if, you're going to, if you die tonight? You know, if, you, if you leave here today, this is a very daunting question, right? If you leave here today, maybe I'll just ask it to you. If you leave here today, what will happen if you get hit by a car? That just sounds like a terrible question. What happens if you have an aneurysm in bed and you don't wake up? Right? It's a good evangelistic question, but what if you do wake up? What if you wake up tomorrow and then the next day and then the next day? And what if you keep waking up for another 50 years? What does it really mean to be God's people? Is it just a fire escape uh, so that we can avoid the horrors of hell? Or is it, is it something more? Does it, does it mean something to be God's people in God's world? And the book of Nehemiah really is helping us understand what it looks like to be people that have been pieced back together whose lives were previously tattered and in ruins and yet God wants to, desires, and is on the move to piece us back together again and to accomplish his missional purposes in and through us. And he doesn't work around his people, which he could, and frankly, if I were writing the story, I think that's how I'd write it, is that God worked with them for a period of time, and then he just, there's an X over their name, he goes around them, and he just does everything on his own. But he doesn't. He's committed to his people. He's committed to us. And this is the story about a people they were to know who they were in God's world. And so when we open the pages of Nehemiah, God's people at this point in the story, many of them in fact, even though they were um, taken off in exile because of their sin once again and moved far away from their land, Jerusalem toppled in 586, walls broken down, gates burned as we read in the first chapter, this pagan king Cyrus releases them and allows them to move back into Jerusalem, frees them so that they, go, they could go and rebuild the temple. Well, um, many of them chose not to. They were so accustomed to being a broken people that they didn't see the importance of what God intended for them to gather in Jerusalem and to be a light to the nations, to be a magnetic force that drew in others to come and know him. And so some of them just stayed where they were at. Those that did move back uh, were not terribly in, impressive, and they struggled, just like we do, to begin again. How are they going to be a city on a hill, a light to the nations, if they can't even fix their broken down walls and their burned down gates? Did God forget about them? Does he even care about them? Will he ever use them again? Will the shadow of their failure hang over them forever? Nehemiah is a case study, not only in God's character and faithfulness, but in human weakness and in God's calling for us to be a people that arise 
and build again, especially after loss. Almost always, it's a call after loss. And so we're going to learn a little bit about what God's up to, and Tim has a privilege of unpacking this over these next uh, few weeks. It's a fun story. It's fast-paced. It's going to be really exciting when you guys have to get to the list of names, full chapters just of names that no one can pronounce. But uh, I want to give a preview. There's a name in there, Darkon. And I just want to lobby that if you have children, that someone please, I've been doing this for quite some time now, every time I preach, I'm disappointed. You didn't name your child Darkon. It's a great name. So this is what it says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as, it was, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The, walls, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So it's around November, December of the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. It's about 445 BC. If you know anything about Israel's history, I don't mean to bore you with this, but 586, they're taken over once again. Uh, They're carted off into exile. It's 141 years later. They, of course, as I mentioned already, have been uh, liberated by the pagan king Cyrus. They're able to move back into Jerusalem. So they've been there for a little over 100 years or so. They're in Jerusalem, and every day, day after day, generation after generation, they wake up, and the walls are still toppled. The gates are still burned. And they've done nothing. And then God introduces in this story this very unlikely character we know at the end of the chapter. He's a cupbearer to a king, which is a pretty decent gig because you get to sample all the best wine to give it to King Artaxerxes. It's also, could be poison, so you could die that day. So it's very exciting. <laughs> you never know what's coming that day. It keeps you on your toes. But here's just this guy that's a servant, a Jew that's been exiled. He's in southern Iran, right, which is where Susa is. He's at the winter residence of King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the world at the time. He's serving him. And all of a sudden, his brothers come back and give him news about Jerusalem. He inquires, which is interesting. It makes you wonder, well, why did he inquire now versus any other time? From what we understand about Nehemiah, Nehemiah didn't grow up in Jerusalem. His parents probably didn't grow up in Jerusalem. His parents' parents probably didn't grow up in Jerusalem. So he's been in exile for many generations. And yet all of a sudden, his heart is opened. All of a sudden, he becomes aware of the plight of his people. And there's a lot of debate surrounding this news and how it came, and commentators kind of split on whether or not this is new news from Ezra 4, or if it's news that Nehemiah always knew, but for whatever reason is now sensing and feeling. And I think there's a good argument to say this is news that Nehemiah has known for quite some time. And what's odd about it is... Nehemiah, all of a sudden, seems to become more aware than he ever has been that something's wrong with God's people. I just wonder if, like Nehemiah, you've gotten so accustomed to things being broken in your city, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your life, that it just doesn't affect you anymore, right? 
You know, seeing devastation and sin all around you all the time tends to have a negative effect and impact on us. We, we tend to get a bit nonplussed about the whole thing. You know, it's just we get overwhelmed, we turn on the news, we become, if we really paid attention and took in what, what was being broadcast, we'd all become very depressed and require copious amounts of Xanax. And so what we do is we tend to shut our hearts off to things that are broken. And we don't want to listen. We plug our ears, we close our eyes, and we pretend that it doesn't affect us. God is opening Nehemiah's heart. He's opening it to his people. He's opening it to this city that God loves. And so how does he respond? Well, it says this in verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard the words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. When you jump to chapter 2, which you guys will be in next week, uh, they move from the month of Chislev to Nisan. It's four months. So this is not like a couple hours that he sat down and he wept. It's not just even a few days. It's four months that Nehemiah weeps and mourns and fasts and prays. Something happens to Nehemiah's heart, and this news buckles his knees. He's bent over. He's brokenhearted. He's, this is like news of Hurricane Katrina and 9-11 and the Boston bombing all happening at the same time to him. It's unbelievable news. Why? What is going on? What is God up to by his spirit that is opening Nehemiah's heart? It seems like he's beginning to grasp a little bit of what Jesus experienced when in his ministry he looks over Jerusalem the city that would to be that was to be this light to the nation and his only response is he just weeps it's such a strange thing to think about our savior engaging emotionally that way right like Nehemiah you think okay well he's a guy that i don't know something happened to him maybe he heard a report of a relative that was you know a distant relative and Maybe they're injured or they're in some peril. Who knows what it is? But Jesus, well, that just seems odd for Jesus, the king of the universe, the redeemer of all things, the savior of the world, to expend emotional energy over loss. I always find it odd, don't you, when Jesus goes to heal Lazarus. Of course, his, his friends come and tell him that Lazarus is sick, and instead of Jesus freaking out, in a panic like we would, he stays where he's at four more days. It's like, Lazarus is sick, he's about to die. Okay, I'll hang here for almost a week. And he gets to where Lazarus was sick. Lazarus has already died. And how does Jesus respond? He weeps. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he weeps. We hear a story of Jesus and some of his followers walking on a road and and there's this procession, this funeral procession of of the widow of Nain and her son has just died. She's a widow and so her son meant her security for her future. Her life is over. Her son's in a basket being carried by people and these two parties converge on the road and it says that Jesus looks at her. His heart goes out. He feels Compassion. There's a Greek word that's used for Jesus' emotional response. It's a funny word, splanknitsomai. It literally means Jesus' guts are turned over. 
There's like a pain in his gut. Why? Like what? He touches the boy and heals him, and he rises from the dead. Why would Jesus engage emotionally if he knows he's going to fix the problem? I would just bypass the emotional engagement and fix the problem. This is the problem with being a man, apparently, as my wife tells me. So we like to bypass emotional engagement and fix the problem. My wife will often tell me, more times than I care to admit, and my daughter, Dad, that's not what my wife says. Uh, That's my daughter. Honey, I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to listen. And I'm like, problem, fix it. Problem, fix it. Problem, fix it. Problem, fix it. And that's just, that's, that's my pattern of life. No need to engage emotionally. No need to get upset by it. We've got a solution. Let's just fix it. Most of my counseling in the early years was just like that. I was the world's worst pastor. Uh, you should have never come to me for counseling because you'd sit in my office, you'd begin to tell me your problem. I would recognize that this story is going to take a while, so I'd finish your story for you. Okay, and so then you had an affair. Okay, right? Let's, can we get there? And you're in sin, right? And that's why you're here. Okay, I've got a verse. What does it say? Okay, don't do that. <laughs> do you feel better? You know, I feel wonderful, right? Of course, you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't want to engage emotionally. It was difficult. It is difficult for men to engage emotionally in brokenness. We just want to fix things. But we look at Christ, the true human, the true man, and he feels. He feels everything. He feels loss and pain. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to see with compassion and have his stomach turned over for another. He allows his eyes to be filled with hurting people. And there's something about Nehemiah's response that is really good for us to understand. Nehemiah is a man of action. This is not a guy that sits around and brushes everybody's hair and like tells story about um, you know, his repressed childhood memories. This is a man of action that gets things done. And yet, His response is weeping and mourning and praying and fasting. It seems that's all he can do. And before he lifts a finger to make a request to King Xerxes, he engages the problem. And as we look at our city and as you look at your life and as you consider your church and your neighbors and all of those connected relationships that God has sovereignly chosen for you, Do you have that same response over brokenness? Do you feel it? Are you allowing yourself to engage it and not run from it? Eyes wide open, shoulders squared, taking it in and realizing that when you truly look at things that are broken, it hurts. Or do you, like me, tend to just sort of sweep it under the rug and pretend it'll go away or immediately fix it, and if you can't fix it, then you ignore it? I love Nehemiah's pattern here. He weeps and he prays and he fasts. You guys, as Pastor Tim was telling me, you guys have gone through sort of some prayer journaling the last few weeks, beginning of the year. What a great leader Nehemiah is in showing us what it means to really begin anything. You've got to recognize the problem. You've got to emotionally engage in the problem. And you need to seek the one that actually can do anything about it. 
Nehemiah doesn't lift his finger yet because he needs to make his requests and his petitions and his lament and his grieving known to God. And then what does it say? Well, it says that in verse 5, and I said in his prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which they have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant, Moses. Nehemiah looks to God's character He begins to pray to the God of heaven who is great and awesome. He prays that God would hear his prayer. He prays that the God who keeps his promises and covenant uh, would incline himself towards him and remember his own steadfast love and faithfulness. And he, he looks to God in trust. And in this world of deceit and lies and treachery and unfaithfulness, Nehemiah knows God can be trusted. And Nehemiah confesses sins of the people, and his own sins. I find this particularly odd. For this reason, the plight of Israel is not Nehemiah's fault, technically. Nehemiah didn't do to the Israelites generations ago what led them to be in a place of brokenness and loss. It's not Nehemiah's fault. He's not responsible But Nehemiah takes responsibility. It's not interesting. He's not responsible, but he takes responsibility. And after he spent time weeping and mourning and fasting and praying, as he's petitioned God for help, as he's sought the one who is faithful, who keeps covenant forever, the only right response for Nehemiah is to confess his own sin. It's to acknowledge that even they, his own family, his father's house, sinned against God. And maybe what Nehemiah is confessing, and this perhaps is a great place for us to start as we journey through, as you journey through the book of Nehemiah, is just repenting for our apathy. Repenting for not seeing the things that God wants us to see in our city, in our life, and in the world. Repenting for allowing our hearts to get hard and cold to the things and people that God wants to heal and restore. Nehemiah perhaps is confessing, Lord, we've known, my family has known, we've told the story of your people. Again and again and again, we recount our narrative history. And when we get to the place that the the current events and affairs of God's people, we always recognize that because of their folly and because of their sin and because of their repeated rebellion, God, you have disciplined them sorely. But Lord, we've not cared. We've looked the other way. We've washed our hands. We've excused ourselves and contented ourselves with not being responsible. But Nehemiah is not that kind of leader. We all know that kind of leader, right? The kind of leader that recognizes that things are broken and wrong, but is unwilling to engage emotionally 
and is unwilling to own their share. This, I would say, in the church world, is a particularly pernicious problem. Our hearts grow fat. We become a bit inflated. And we're so stuffed with self, we have no room for repentance. Repentance, instead of becoming the natural response to us recognizing our life lived before the face of God becomes mechanical and or difficult, perhaps even rare. And where we ought be on our face fairly regularly for the times that we have and the ways in which we have not only sinned against our God, but have also not cared about the things that God cares about. We have not walked in his ways. We've not wanted what he wants. We've not done what he's told us. We've not said what he told us to say. We don't love the things that he loves, and we don't reject the things that he calls us to reject. There is this opportunity on a daily basis that we have as a people of God to simply confess the ways that we're not like him and ask him by his loving, renewing grace to make us new again, to make us more and more by the power of his own spirit into the image of his own son, And instead, what leaders tend to do is they tend to begin to think that they're Jesus. That they're the Messiah, that they're the ones that really make things happen. They're the ones that really keep things going. They're spinning the plates or they're juggling the balls or whatever it is that that needs to be done. They're the ones orchestrating all the events and the affairs of the church. And so the responsibility falls on them. And if that's going to be true, that the people expect that of me, or if that's what I project, then I can't show weakness. I can't repent because they're going to think I'm incompetent and incapable. Have any of you ever read the story of Nehemiah? Go ahead, raise your hand. Does Nehemiah strike you as an incompetent and incapable man? Okay, spoiler alert. They rebuild the wall in like 51 or 52 days that has been broken down for 141 years because Nehemiah moves in, gets close, loves God's people, and is committed to Jesus' mission, ultimately Jesus' mission, to renew the city that God made. He is a man that is fully capable because he's a man that knows what repentance looks like. He's taking ownership. Now, we live in a world where this is not popular to take ownership for the things that are not your fault. Oh, my goodness. If there's anything I've learned through social media is, number one, I probably should never be on social media. It's rule number one. Number two, uh, we've just created such an acrimonious and hostile environment to converse with people that differ from us. We're flattening everybody out and making them into caricatures. Remember those caricatures when, you, caricatures when you'd go to the fair, you'd you know, go to a mall or, or some event and somebody's drawing characters. Well, they, I've had a few of these done with my daughter and now with my nose is always much larger than I think it is. And my head is always much, much bigger than I want it to be. And I get flattened out. I get made into a cartoon character with comic book proportions. And, uh, and that's what we do. We flatten people out. We make them two-dimensional. We make a caricature of them, we expand their proportions so that they're comic book characters to us, and then we villainize them. And it's so easy to do, and it's so deadly. It's the poison of self-righteousness flowing through our veins. We think we live in a world of white hat, black hats, and our team is always the one with the white hats. Our political, spiritual enemies are those with the black hats. And we're so accustomed to defending ourselves and our position that we've 
We've forgotten to just repent. We, it's not natural for us. We need help to repent. And examples like Nehemiah for me are incredibly encouraging because I look at this kind of man who um, is not Jesus, but gives us glimpses, a foreshadow of Jesus. And I think as a leader, I want to be this kind of man. I want to be this kind of leader, a man that is tender, a man that is aware with eyes wide open, that sees brokenness, engages emotionally, seeks the Lord in prayer and fasting, weeps and mourns, a man that repents. It begins there. It takes ownership for my part. He moves on and uh, in this chapter, and we hear in verse 11, it says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. I, I wonder, I do wonder, if some of the reason for our struggle to repent and to be this raw and vulnerable before God is because we don't delight in fearing God. Maybe we've grown accustomed to presuming upon him and his grace. I mean, we, we, we should rightly hear and preach help one another believe that God accepts us as we are, but we've got to be very careful with that statement because if we're not listening carefully, what it it can imply is that we're fine just the way that we are and it's really no problem, God will accept you. And yes, we can work that out theologically. Yes, of course, because of the merits of Christ, if the Holy Spirit is at work, he's opening your heart, granting faith and repentance. God welcomes and absolutely, yes, these things are all true. It's all initiated by God. It's by the loving move of God into our lives to bring us to himself. Yes, yes, and yes. But I wonder if sometimes we cheapen that and we, we forget who we're dealing with. The maker of the world, the creator of the cosmos, the one who holds every atom and molecule exactly in place by the word of his own power, the one who simply spoke and made all things that we see in this what appears to be an almost infinite universe, the one who, when he speaks, he strips forests bare. When Isaiah gets a glimpse of this God, he freaks out in Isaiah 6 because inanimate objects are shaking at the glory of God and angels that seem to be angels made without sin are covering themselves because they can't stand the direct gaze of the Christ who sits on the throne, he becomes becomes undone. He's aware of his God and he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling amongst a people of unclean lips. He just recognizes who he is. He's coming apart. He's saying, you are pulling the thread that keeps me together. I am falling apart before you, God. Every time humans encounter God in the Bible, there's trauma in our natural sinful state. There's trauma. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I do wonder if our inability to to see God for who he is is keeping us from our ability to see us as we truly are. Loved, yes. Graced, yes. Forgiven, yes. 
in need of repentance? Yes, because we're still sinners. Yes. Nehemiah says that he delights, that they delight to fear his name. Do you delight to fear God's name? Or were you told that fear is to be avoided at all costs? I think, I think that's true in the New Testament. It says perfect love casts out all fear, right? So we're told again and again, I mean, one of the most popular commands of Jesus is fear not. So certainly that's true. God tells us not to be afraid at times. <clears throat> but that worshipful awe, when we consider his majesty and his splendor and glory, that causes you to just come undone before him, that leaves you in a place of recognizing his wonder and majesty and your need for his grace. When was the last time you felt that? When was the last time you experienced that? See, Nehemiah is a journey that we get to be taken on, and it's a great journey. But chapter one is not unintentional. All the preparatory work to frame what's coming next needs to be heard in chapter one. It's almost as if the writer of Nehemiah is doing us all a favor of saying, look, you're not gonna understand chapters two through 13 unless you first get the proper posture to hearing the story. There is a great and awesome God who keeps his promises that we can trust. And the world is shattered and broken. The shalom that God created in Genesis 1 and 2 has been vandalized. And humans made in God's image have been marred and broken. The world is not the way it's supposed to be right now. But it's not always going to be this way. God is, is on the move. He's at work. He's gathered a people, a people he's showing his glory to, a people that he's showing his glory through. He's chosen them for himself. He's chosen in the Old Testament a land, a place. He's chosen Jerusalem as the city, this light on the hill. And God's people are to live under God's reign to show the wonders of God to all the nations of the earth. And this God, this living, powerful, mighty, beautiful, glorious, majestic God is the God we've been brought into relationship with. And it's the God who is calling each of us today who maybe are struggling even now. I don't know, obviously, your stories. Maybe you're here today and by even beginning the sermon saying something about the hardest thing to do is to rebuild again. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe your marriage is, marriage is in pieces. If you have marriages, that's a different problem. More than one, that's, that's a challenge. Maybe your marriage is in, in Maybe you're financially just upside down. Maybe your health, it's not what it should be. Maybe you're experiencing loss that like Nehemiah has buckled your knees. And you're here to ask God, God, will I ever rise again? And so here's the invitation. Weep, mourn, pray. And delight in fearing God's name. Begin there. In repentance before the one who loves you. God is gracious to us. And Nehemiah, great figure as he is, if we just ended there, we'd all kind of feel terrible, right? I mean, really, you've got to be careful with reading Nehemiah 
Because if you read Nehemiah and you sort of read it straight through without remembering the gospel and all of it, pardon the expression, but you just feel like a turd afterwards. You do. Like, you read, I remember reading Nehemiah the first couple of times and I just closed it and went, yep, that's not me. Nehemiah points us to someone greater still. Someone who didn't just leave being a servant to the king, but was the king himself, who left his palace. Who didn't just leave to risk his life, but who gave his life. A king far superior to Nehemiah, a leader far more consistent than Nehemiah. And when we gather together every week, we are remembering once again the work of our king to leave his throne, to move from his palace into our world, to pursue each one of us, to put us back together again so that through his grace and forgiveness, we might be able to rise again as a church, as a people, as individuals. God desires for you to arise and build. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness and your love. Thank you for giving us glimpses of what you're like. Lord, we, we know what you're like, not just because of truths that we rehearse about you, but because of the ways that you moved in history. You've been faithful to your people. You've pursued your people. You've sent leaders to love your people. You've moved hearts. You've changed minds. You've granted grace and provision. All along, the story seems treacherous and your people constantly seem in peril and yet you keep your covenant the whole time. Lord, we come to you this morning and we Father, remember and we ask, Lord, for the areas of our lives that we've simply accepted broken walls and burned down gates. Lord, help us to repent. Help us to look up in faith once again, to believe that you really are who you say you are. You really do what you said you've done. We really can trust you. So Lord, we confess now and in repentance we ask, Lord, forgive us. We hand over our burdens and concerns to you, our worries, and we ask, Lord, build us again. Let us arise and build, we pray. In Jesus' name.